Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building. You're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economic. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75, 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you. And O'Reilly, they can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you don't have a, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, when they over-incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching has never changed anything.
All right, once again, today's podcast is titled Josiah Henson, Uncle Tom Economics, live stream number 619-768-2945. In 2018, or whenever you're listening to this, particularly here in the United States, if you hear another black person call another black person uh, Uncle Tom, it's usually in a negative connotation. That's because most people who use it in a negative connotation don't know. Somehow over the years, it got mistranslated. And they don't know who Uncle Tom was and who it was based on. Matter of fact, I'm going to play a little audio here from the Jeffersons to illustrate that point. Josiah Henson was the leaving so soon. Well, I hate to overstay my welcome. Somehow I felt I did that the moment I walked through the door. (laughs) Where's Louise? I'd like to say goodbye to her before I go. She's out. She had to get up early this morning to go shopping. I'll wait for her. You mind if I serve myself a cup of coffee? Nobody serves better than you. (laughs) Tell me something, George. You like to use the words Uncle Tom a lot. Only when it fits. Do you know who Uncle Tom really was? Sure. He was that dumb nigga used to thank Simon LeGree for whipping him. (laughs) Wrong. That's another one of those lies about our people that has been accepted as truth. Who was he then? Superfly in disguise? <laughs> no, George. In real life, Uncle Tom was a slave named Josiah Henson, who escaped and walked all the way from Kentucky to Canada with his wife and children. And there he started the first manual training school for our people. How you knew that? I read. Sometimes I listen. You could do the same thing. Huh? You heard of the Underground Railroad? Sure. Well, Josiah Henson helped a hundred slaves escape up north even before there was an underground railroad. He was a brave man, a great leader. And I'll tell you something else, George. I'd never call you an Uncle Tom. So... Today, you have a lot of people that have been miseducated, got misinformation. Josiah Henson, uh, Uncle Tom. Well, I mean, you know what? Just think about it now. He walked, he and his family walked, not drove, didn't take the Greyhound bus because that didn't exist back then, walked from the state of Kentucky to Canada. Walked, and I'm pretty sure for a good portion of it, they couldn't walk main roads because of the conditions back then were like life and death. All right, as stated, and we're going to do some more backstory audio on Josiah Henson, which builds, which will help us build up to the uh, Uncle Tom economics portion of today's podcast, which how you can. Model or mimic Josiah Henson, Uncle Tom. Um, because these whole tips 
that misused the name, but they, they don't they don't know the backstory. Anyway, but he 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 did more than just start a school. This guy bought he he bought two hundred acres of land in Canada, got his school started, had other it's called the Dawn Settlement, uh, which still exists in Canada to this day. He bought two hundred acres, populated that, and then I think his community got up to five hundred people, and then bought another two hundred acres. Now this is a guy who started off as a slave. So if we got a, if we got a guy that can walk between, uh, take his family and they walk between Kentucky to Canada. No cell phones, no internet connection, no Greyhound bus. Buy land, buy more than land. Like two hundred acres is significant. He ended up with four hundred acres. We don't have any excuses in two thousand eighteen. In any event, uh, we're going to build up to what Uncle, at least the it's my house definition. Of itch, uh, excuse me, Uncle Tom economics. Uh, let's go to the next clip. Josiah Henson's story is a remarkable tale of a man who escaped the brutal bonds of slavery. He built a settlement for fugitive slaves and a school where their children could receive a proper education. His memoirs were a key inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin, the best-selling novel of the 19th century, which Abraham Lincoln credited with starting the Civil War. Josiah Henson's efforts on behalf of the Underground Railroad helped more than 100 slaves escape to freedom. He was received as an honored guest by the President of the United States, and he even traveled to England and met the Queen twice. But I'm getting ahead of the story. Josiah Henson was born June 15, 1789, in Charles County, Maryland, about a mile from Port Tobacco. As Negroes of African ancestry, Josiah's mother and father were property of local farmers. Yes, Josiah's parents were slaves, and so was Josiah. One day, while working in the fields on his master's farm, Josiah's father heard a woman screaming. He arrived on the scene to find the white overseer attacking his wife. Josiah's father would have killed the overseer except for his wife's pleadings and the overseer's promise that nothing would ever be said of the matter. But the overseer had lied. You know, when he was, when he was really young, I think three or four years of age, he saw his father um, being brought to the center of the plantation and put, in, put on display and his punishment for having touched a, a white person, because in those days it was illegal for a black to touch a white person. His father's punishment was that he was lashed a hundred times, and then his, his right ear was tacked to a post and then cut off with a knife. And just imagine having to witness that at such a young age. And his father was put up on an auction block and sold down to Alabama because he was seen as somewhat of a troublemaker on the plantation. Young Josiah's troubles were just beginning. Well, only a year or so after his father was sold, his master was killed in an accident. In a drunken stupor, he fell from his horse into a shallow creek and was too drunk to save himself. And as a result of his death, it became necessary to sell the estate and the slaves. 
As was common in those days, Josiah's entire family was put on the auction block and sold to the highest bidder. The first image I think of when I, I think of Henson, is I think of him being up on the auction block um, and being sold away from his brothers and sisters and, and his mother and dad. And how heart-wrenching that must have been. He was sold away from, from most of his family. His mother pleaded and pleaded with um, the man who purchased him to, to buy her as well. But um, he was separated from his mother and became ill under his new master. And the masters had some foresight in knowing that a boy would get stronger if he had the love of his mother with him. And so he was sold back um, with his mother. And under her tutelage, you know, he really got better. And he was really a strong, helped to build his strong character that he had throughout his life. Slaves were supplied with the barest minimum of food and clothing. They lived in single room huts with only packed dirt for a floor. And 10 or 12 adults and children would crowd into each hut to sleep. The huts provided little protection from the dampness and cold. And they did not permit the common decencies of life. Okay, before we go to our next uh, audio on Josiah Henson uh, on today's podcast, which is titled Josiah Henson and Uncle Tom Economics, the reason why I don't buy into the, what's that, post-traumatic slave syndrome, this guy started out life legally as a slave, number one. Number two, as you just heard, he he went through the trauma of um, – you know, family being split up and sold on an auction block. And still he had enough resilience. He had a resilience gene, not a not a DNA gene of he didn't he he let that whatever trauma there was, it he shook it off. It's resilience to live through what he lived through at an early age. It's resilience to walk from Canada to Kentucky. It's resilience because you know when he got that 200 acres of land, he didn't get a loan. He didn't get any money from a bank to do it. There were no entitlement programs from the government to do it. We're talking about resilience. So, and in every black American person that's listening to this podcast. You come from this, maybe not the exact gene pool, but you are the fruit. You're the descendant of people who had the same resilience. That's why you're alive today to listen to this podcast. Thus, you got the whole tech crowd trying to make a living saying that you're a victim. No we're all victors. My name is Steve Cook. I'm the curator and the manager of the Uncle Tom's Cabin Historic Site. Uncle Tom's cabin is built on five acres of the original 300 acres that Josiah Henson purchased when he came to the Dresden area. 
And uh, on that five acres, you'll see the Josiah Henson Interpretive Center, where we have our museum collection of uh, old books and artifacts related to his life. We also have a theater inside there where we show a 30-minute video on Henson's life and his accomplishments. And uh, in the Underground Railroad Freedom Gallery is where the, the main portion of our collection is of the slavery artifacts and those things relevant to his, his time here in Dresden. But on the back property, we have three historic buildings. Um, the James Harris House, which is an early example of how these blacks lived when they first got to Dresden. There's also a, a period church because add to all of Henson's accomplishments, he was also a minister in the Methodist Episcopal Church. So we have one that dates back to the mid-1800s on our property. And the centerpiece of our whole site is the Josiah Henson House, or Uncle Tom's Cabin, the last structure that Josiah Henson lived in before he died in 1883. Josiah Henson's known around the world internationally as Uncle Tom. And that's really the number one question that uh, our visitors have when they come here is how can he be known as Josiah Henson and Uncle Tom at the same time? And that's because it goes back to Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, published in 1852. And it was really the first um, book that was an outcry against an American law. It was condemning slavery and how the blacks were being treated on plantations in the South. So Mrs. Stowe created this story full of all these uh, colorful characters. There's Topsy, this little black girl that just grew. There's um, the evil Simon the Gree, who's known for being a brutal and, and, and vicious man. And of course, there's the character of Uncle Tom. And Uncle Tom in the story is a saintly figure who does the work that's dealt out to him by his master. And his reward for doing that is that he's sold downriver to Simon Legree, who beats him to death at the end of the story. And in order to create the character of Uncle Tom, Mrs. Stowe began reading publications that had been written by anti-slavery press and also books that had been published by former slaves. One book that she did get her hands on was a little white pamphlet called The Life of Josiah Henson, Formerly a Slave. That's Henson's autobiography that he dictated in 1849. She read this book and was so inspired by what he'd been through in his 41 years of being a slave that she used it to help her back up her novel. Because when her book came out in 1852, people doubted her story. They didn't believe blacks were being treated the way that she um, portrayed them in her novel. So in 1853, she wrote another book and called it A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was that book where she gave all of her source material and she said, Simon Legree was based on this man, Topsy was based on this girl, and the character of Uncle Tom is based on the life of Josiah Henson, who is now a, a preacher living in Canada. So the moment that she wrote those words down, people automatically associated Henson with the, the Uncle Tom in her story. And at times, Josiah Henson himself did tour the world. He, well, I shouldn't say the world, he toured Europe and the States um, as the real-life Uncle Tom. And, and that's how people really associated him with that character.
a few number of former slaves who has written an autobiography of their life. And it is the vibrant details of growing up here on Riley's plantation, the types of crops that are grown, the type of work that he does, the pride that he takes in the work that he does as someone who is enslaved. You would not expect him to exhibit this amount of pride that he took in his work in taking care of the other enslaved workers who are here on Riley's plantation. Our archaeologists continue work at this site and inside the log wing when you come and visit you'll find that there's a huge opening in the middle of the floor where they are currently excavating and they're looking for former layers of flooring that will show what other log kitchens may have been in place on this property as well as their, the excavations in our backyard where they're looking for additional structures. All across this ground, we know that Father Henson has walked all across the ground and that he has walked through the main house many times with business transactions he would have had with his owner. Um, he would have walked the grounds to check on crops. So his footprints are all across this property. Hey, Becca. Hi, Kim. All right, so we're here to talk about Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I think this is such an interesting book because when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said to her, so you're the little lady that started this great war. He said Uncle Tom's Cabin actually started the Civil War. So how does a book start a war? I think that's a really good question, Kim, and these next two videos are going to help us understand a little bit more why Lincoln said that. How does a little book start a war? So this book was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Here she is, Stowe. And Harriet Beecher Stowe was born in Litchfield, Connecticut, to this kind of great abolitionist family. So what's abolitionism, Kim? Well, abolitionism was the belief in, mostly in the early 19th century, that slavery should be ended immediately. So there were varieties of beliefs about the institution of slavery in early America. Some people obviously were very pro-slavery, believed that it was a natural institution sanctioned by the Bible. Some people, like Abraham Lincoln, at least early in his political career, just wanted slavery to stay where it was. And those were what we would call free soilers or um, anti-slavery advocates. They said, all right, we can't get rid of slavery in the South. It's too entrenched there as an institution, but we can make sure that it does not spread to any of the Western territories that we might settle in the future. But abolitionists were the strongest opponents of slavery. They said that slavery should be ended today, everywhere in the United States and the world, and that it is an immoral, unchristian institution. So these Western territories were a really big part of the increasing tension over the institution of slavery in the 1850s. So in 1848, the United States won the Mexican-American War, and they got a whole bunch of new territory that had once been Mexico. And these will become the states of Texas and Oklahoma and many of the sort of Midwestern states we have today. But this now threatened the balance of power between those slaveholding states in U.S. Congress and those that were free states. So now everyone is wondering, is slavery going to spread to the West? Should slavery spread to the West? 
And this kind of anxiety about the Western expansion of slavery was more tense and became more sectionally divided after the Compromise of 1850. So the Compromise of 1850 happened right here in 1850. (laughs) And the Compromise of 1850, I like to think of it kind of like a Band-Aid over this sectional tension. So I'll show you guys a little Band-Aid. This is like a gaping wound, right? (laughs) And the Compromise of 1850 is just like this tiny little Band-Aid that's kind of holding this dam together to mix my metaphors. The Compromise of 1850 actually admitted California as a free state, okay. which was a really big win for the North, obviously. Right. They, of gold. But it also had a really strong Fugitive Slave Act. So this was a really kind of critical part of the Compromise of 1850, and this was a big win for the South. So why was it a big win? Well, the Fugitive Slave Act said that if a marshal was in your town requesting your help in rounding up an escaped slave, you had to help that marshal or face charges yourself. So this meant that any time that someone who was enslaved in the South made a run for the North, a run for Canada, as many of the enslaved people did, anyone in the North might be drafted to help return that person to the South. And if they didn't, they were oftentimes fined. And this really made all Northerners participatory in slavery. Even if they weren't slaveholders themselves or living on a plantation in the South, Northerners were participating in the way that slavery was held together by disallowing runaway slaves from continuing their lives in free territories. So you can imagine how this might really galvanize a Northern audience into action about slavery, because before you might think, well, I don't like slavery, but what does it have to do with me, right? I'm just a grain miller living in Pennsylvania. None of my business. I don't like it, but I can't do anything about it, and it's not my fault. Now, all of a sudden, if an escaped slave comes past your house and a marshal follows him or her, now you've got to be a person to round that person up. And so that means you have to participate in slavery directly. And so you might find yourself thinking, you know what, I refuse to do that. And that means that I really do hate slavery. And this was definitely the sentiment that Stowe and her family had on the Underground Railroad. So Stowe lived on a stop in the Underground Railroad, and that was this passageway for southern slaves to get to the north. And Stowe and her husband actually helped a lot of runaway slaves. So the Underground Railroad wasn't like a literal railroad, right? I mean, that would be pretty sweet if there were (laughs) a railroad that went under the ground all the way up to Canada. But it was more like a sort of informal network of people who might help escaped slaves, direct them to food and shelter, and just kind of send them along to the next waypost on their trip either to the north or to Canada. And so when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed with the Compromise of 1850, the Band-Aid, this really upset Harriet Beecher Stowe and really was one of the main catalysts for her writing this book. She also witnessed a slave auction, and this Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote about as just this terrible kind of scene of a family being just torn apart. And this was a really common practice within slavery that the unit of the family was not respected as slaveholders wanted to um, sell their slaves to different plantations throughout the South. And this slave auction really became the basis for the plot of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Slave auctions were absolutely terrible. Um, In fact, 
not long before the Civil War, the main slave auction site in Washington, D.C. was just around the corner from the White House. So imagine walking down the thoroughfare of this great democracy, seeing the president's house, the seat of government, and then turning a corner and seeing people being sold off the block. You know, Abraham Lincoln saw a slave auction in New Orleans, and he said it was one of the things that most influenced him to hate slavery, just witnessing these families being torn apart. And Okay, today's podcast is titled uh, Josiah Henson and Uncle Tom Economics, 619-768-2945. There's a lot to it because some of the audio you're hearing is connected to the book uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uh, but there's a lot to it. But for the purpose of this podcast, Josiah, Josiah Henson, a.k.a. Uncle Tom, was not the person that he that a lot of modern people in 2018, when the term is used, Uncle Tom was used was usually using a, a derogatory name, uh, phase. But Uncle Tom, aka Josiah Henson, which was his real name, was a man who had purchased at least 400 acres of land, started a school specifically for the niche market of slaves or former slaves, I should say, to educate them, all right? We're going to play another audio right now that I want you to use your thinking on how would you – I'm going to present some opportunities. They might not seem like that in this next audio, but we'll we'll tie it all in together because if we practice Uncle Tom economics – we can literally become billionaires. Each and every person listen to this podcast, if that's what you want to be. Hey, welcome back to the channel, everyone. It's time to talk about the elephant in the country, Detroit, Michigan. Unless you've been in a coma for 20 years, you know Detroit has seen some dark times. Detroit was once a booming auto manufacturing city. That's how it got its nickname, the Motor City. The boom started to fizzle in the 1980s when some CEO types decided they could turn a quicker buck by shipping American jobs overseas. Now, this left the auto workers high and dry, and this is known in the business world as a dick move. Detroit in the last few years has been trying to make a comeback, and they've got a long road to go. They've got some scary neighborhoods they need to fix, and that's what this list is all about, the bad neighborhoods. Quick disclaimer, this list is done by stats alone. We're just going by stats on this one. And another thing, most people in Detroit like to refer to the neighborhoods by their cross streets, the major streets. I'm going to actually use the name of the neighborhood. So in case you want to look it up later on, you can. It's easier to find that way. It's next to impossible to find these neighborhoods by their cross streets. So let's get going. Here's my top 10 worst neighborhoods in Detroit. Number 10, Boynton Oakwood Heights. Boynton and Oakwood Heights are the southernmost neighborhoods of the city of Detroit. Now, there's two separate neighborhoods, but most people kind of see them as one, and they both suck. These places bump right up against an industrial area, and of course, this has raised some health concern for the residents living in Boynton and Oakwood Heights for years. This, like so many other neighborhoods in Detroit, has seen a mass exodus from these areas. People just don't live there anymore. They move out. They have about 800 vacant homes right now. The banks don't even put up for sale signs anymore. The people have been taking them down and using them to heat their homes in the winter. It scores an F in all categories but cost of living 
Of course, because no one wants to live there, it's pretty cheap to live there. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Boynton Oakwood Heights is 209% higher than the national average, and the unemployment rate is 94% higher than the national average. Number 9. Riverdale. Riverdale is in the northwest section of Detroit. This Riverdale is not like the Riverdale you see on that cheesy, archy comic mutation on the CW these days. This place is dirty, it's dangerous, and it's depressing. This is the type of place you move to if your life really hasn't worked out for you and you've just given up. Here's some good news. You can get a house on the cheap. Here's a screenshot from Zillow. That one for 6K? Yeah, you're probably going to have to move the body of the old owner yourself for that price. I can't believe you can buy a house for $6,000. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Riverdale is 227% higher than the national average. This one is startling. Only 66% of the people in Riverdale have completed the 8th grade. Wow. Number 8. Griggsdale. Across from the Palmer Park Golf Course is one of Detroit's most run-down neighborhoods. Grixdale. And I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I'm not from there. This list is done basically off stats and news reports. The only reason you go here to Grixdale is if you're bargain shopping for hookers. Some streets, such as Robinwood, are more than 80% abandoned and often the target of arson. Not even arson for insurance. Arson for fun or warmth. Here's some fun facts. The unemployment in Grixdale is 244% higher than the national average. The average rent ask is 48% lower than the national average. Number 7. Carbon Works. Besides having a very industrial-sounding name, Carbon Works residents share their little piece of heaven with the Detroit Water and Sewage Plant and is across the Rogue River from the ever-so-toxic Zug Island. Most towns pray for good weather, good schools, low crime. Carbon Works residents just pray the wind doesn't change direction while they're eating. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Carbon Works is 252% higher than the national average. The unemployment rate in Carbon Works is 72% higher than the national average. Number six, Briggs. Briggs is a nightmare. Now, this is the neighborhood in Detroit called Briggs, not me. Now, I'm sure if you talked to anyone I dated back in the day, they'd probably say I was a nightmare too. But this video is about my problems. It's about Detroit's problems. Briggs is also known as North Cork Town, or it's kind of next to North Cork Town. They kind of bleed into one another. The first thing you notice about Briggs is the strange amount of open land. Detroit started bulldozing vacant houses some years back, and Briggs was filled with them. So now you have, like, one house on a block that used to hold, like, 20. The rest is just empty fields. It's, it's really eerie, and it's really strange looking. I encourage you to Google map it. It's pretty weird. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Briggs is 263% higher than the national average. There's hardly anyone there. Who's committing all these crimes? The average home price in Briggs is 88% lower than the national average. See? Cheap land. That's one bright spot about Briggs. This place a nightmare. Number 5. Poletown East. Poletown was named after the Polish immigrants who originally lived in the area. That it almost sounds like a racial slur. Poletown. But I guess Poles even call themselves Poles, so I guess it's okay. Maybe not. Moving on. A portion of the residential area known as Poletown became General Motors' Detroit assembly plant in 1981, with those residents being relocated by General Motors. 
and the city of Detroit claimed eminent domain took over the land. The plant is still there and employs 1,800 people. It did add an additional 1,200 jobs back in 2015, but then eliminated them like 12 months later. Now, this is another neighborhood filled with vacant lots. It's one of those ones you see like two houses where there used to be 20 and the rest is just, you know, growth. It's not even like building growth, like bushes and stuff. You'd be surprised what you find in those bushes. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Town East is 218% higher than the national average. And the unemployment rate in Town East is 175% higher than the national average. Number four, Springwells Village. Springwells Village is a neighborhood in southwestern Detroit near the Ford Motor Company plant. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get the meat and potatoes of this place. It's right up the road from Carbon Works, and I'm sure with the right wind, you can catch a glorious whiff of the sewage plant. I read an article about the neighborhood and the smell of the sewage plant. This lady claimed that only out-of-town people even notice the smell. Now, that's kind of like some kind of Stockholm Syndrome or something like that. She's just gotten used to it and you've learned to live with it. And you start sympathizing with the sewage plant. It's weird. If you look at this neighborhood, it doesn't look that bad compared to some of the other areas that I've shown you. They do have the vacant lots, not as many. They do have a whole lot of boarded up houses, not as many as some of the other places, but it still has a lot of crime. A lot of those crimes are burglaries, robberies, and like home invasions. And basically, since this is one of the better neighborhoods of the bad neighborhoods, I think they're drawn in more crime. This is just my opinion. I think they're probably drawn in more crime from the outside area to this area. I saw some videos on crime that was going on there. It's, it's pretty bad, especially for the elderly. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Springwells is 246% higher than the national average. The median household income in Springwells is 45% lower than the national average. Here's a staggering, staggering stat. Only 50.9% of the people in Springwell have completed the eighth grade. Wow. Number three, Northwest Goldberg. Normally when something has the word gold in it, it's a good thing. This place ain't normal. Far from it. This place is run down to say the least. Take a look at this place on Google Street View. And by the way, that's the only way I recommend anyone experience Northwest Goldberg. The area is home to the Motown Museum and it has the Henry Ford Hospital on its border, which is an impressive building. Take a look at that again on Google Street View. Still, I find it hard to believe that anyone still lives here. I did come across a website that said it's getting better in Northwest Goldberg and someday we'll return to a great place to raise kids. Eh, someday maybe. Today, not so much. Most kids today in Northwest Goldberg don't get a bedtime story. Instead, they get their Miranda rights read in the back of a patrol car. Good times in Goldberg. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Northwest Goldberg is 246% higher than the national average, and the unemployment rate in Northwest Goldberg is 96% higher than the national average. Woo! Number two, State Fairgrounds and Chaldean Town. These two are right next to each other and are both hellholes. The State Fairgrounds has almost no residents but plenty of crime, and Chaldean Town used to have a good-sized Chaldean community, so they named the neighborhood after them. It's now known as North Town by some, seeing that most of the Chaldeans have skipped town. Today, most of the homes and businesses are vacant and need to be torn down, but are mostly boarded up or burnt out. This place is a step above a ghost town. 
so bad that maybe that show Ghost Hunters could do an episode or two here. I'd love to see that episode as they try and contact the ghost of Maurice the Crackhead, talk to him for about a half hour. That would be terrific. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Chaldean Town and State Fairgrounds is 282% higher than the national average. Nice going. The unemployment rate in Chaldean Town is 184% higher than the national average. Words of advice. Don't go here. And number one, Potowski Otsego. Potowski Otsego is one of those places that nobody ever tells you that's where they're from. I came across some videos about how you can get cheap houses here from the government or from the city of Detroit. And in all the videos, they never say it's in Potowski Otsego. They always say things like it's a with a view of this neighborhood or walking distance from this neighborhood, a half a mile from this neighborhood. They never mention the neighborhood. And for good reason. Areavibes.com gave it the lowest score I have ever seen, a 41. And it says it's barely livable. I saw another one that was barely livable, but at least that one had like a 46 score. This one's a 41. And that's not good. The street view on Google Maps is depressing to say the least. When I look at it, I think to myself, oh, that's what our country will look like if our government ever collapses. The best way to describe this place is eyesore. Now, I said that they're trying to sell these houses, and they sell them for really cheap. Here's some quick snapshots of the Zillow page for Ptowski Otsego. Them some low prices, but I don't think it's worth it. This place is dangerous. I actually feel sorry for the residents of the place. I feel sorry for a lot of the residents, a lot of these neighborhoods. I don't feel sorry for, like, the homeless and the criminals that live there. They chose this place. Some of these poor people are elderly, and they've lived there forever, and they've got no way out. They've just hoped for the best. And that's, that's the most depressing part about this. Here's some fun facts. The overall crime rate in Potowski Otsego is 252% higher than the national average. This is a small neighborhood. The unemployment rate in Potowski Otsego is 195% higher than the national average. They've got like 5,000 residents, and I think 12 of them have jobs, if I'm reading this correctly. It's not that bad, but pretty close. All right, everyone, that's my top 10 worst neighborhoods in Detroit. I hope you enjoyed it. hope you got some information out of it. Hope you got some laughs out of it. Now, this one was requested for a very long time, and I put it off for a long time because I... Okay. Now, today's podcast for people just tuning in is Josiah Henson and Uncle Tom Economics. For those who didn't know, Josiah Henson, a lot of people have heard of the term Uncle Tom, usually heard in a derogatory manner. Well, the real Uncle Tom, Josiah Henson, was anything but a negative character that, like I say, through the years, his name has been misinterpreted. Sambo's a term that really should be used in a negative way. But anyway, we're talking about Uncle Tom economics based on Josiah Henson, who was the real Uncle Tom, which is a good thing. Now, Josiah Henson, Uncle Tom Economics, he drops some hints. Josiah Henson drops some hints that can be applied to today. All right. We're going to use real estate. Matter of fact, the law, that's one area as well as real estate. And then you can prosper. It's it's mind-boggling how many ways you can go with Uncle Tom Economics. All right, now, here's what we know about Josiah Henson. 
He was born a slave. All right. His parents were slaves. But that was just a legal description. That's all it was. Because the way this guy thinks or thought, because he's no longer with us physically, was that of not a slave. All right. He did not suffer from, and now this is my opinion, he did not suffer from what we call in 2018 post-traumatic slave syndrome. Now, how can somebody in 2018 who was not born a slave and their parents weren't born slaves or their grandparents were how can a person in 2018 claim to be suffering from post-traumatic slave? When you were not in your immediate bloodline, I, I don't get that. Anyway, so this guy, clue number one on Uncle Tom Economics, he did not stay in a geographical location where he was hassled and constrained and limited by the law. He was in Kentucky. He and his family, as you heard one of the first audios, they got their stuff together and walked to Canada. I haven't looked at the mileage. Matter of fact, if somebody's online, look at the mileage between border to border from Kentucky state border to the border of Canada. Please look at it and then press one and give us that number, uh, please. If you've got to march, then do it like he did. He and his wife and kids did. March from a location where you feel that you you know you might be hassled by law enforcement or what have you, you claim white people don't like you where you live at. So I, I get videos on YouTube and comments on YouTube every day of these black people, some on national TV platforms. I have to deal with it every day. That bullshit. Why are you staying in it? If you stand. Once again, Uncle Tom Economics, step one. He walked out of the situation. Walk, march, whatever you want to call it. He went from a place where he was hassled and had to deal with shit into another geographical area where he could prosper. That's big clue number one. Number two. He purchased 200 acres of land. Now, you don't have to purchase 200 acres of land. Land, he was able to grow food, feed himself, because he didn't. Whole Foods claims that, you know, a lot of people go to Whole Foods because they say they can buy organic food. Well, that's all Uncle Tom or Josiah Henson, that's all they grew was organic before it became fashionable. Clue number three, he opened up a school for a specific niche market. 
The school was to educate former slave or, or escaped slaves on how to, you know, live a sustainable and prosperous lifestyle where they were at. Because where he moved to, I mean, Dawn Settlement, which still exists today in Canada, um, you might have to do that. Now, let's link it to the last audio I played of all these vacant houses in Detroit. And in in matter of fact, you can call Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, City, Boston, Massachusetts, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Ohio. There are urban cities throughout the United States that have a whole bunch of vacant houses. So today we're going to just, for illustration purposes, deal with Detroit and using Josiah Henson thinking, Uncle Tom economic methodologies. In Detroit, there are at least 70,000 abandoned buildings 31,000 uh, empty houses and 90,000 vacant lots. If you go to realtor.com, which is just one website where you can narrow down what you want, they have 600. Now, what I did was I went on realtor.com and I put in Detroit and I put in, I'm looking for houses. No higher houses or land no higher than thirty thousand dollars, and with no minimum, and it brought me back six hundred and forty-five homes. You can do this, homes and land. All right. So, the first thing I'm looking at is a lot, a city lot for over thirty-four hundred square feet, four thousand bucks. It is vacant. You can build what you want. I'm well according to zoning. Another one for it's endless. I'm not going to go through this because Detroit, Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Camden, New Jersey, any city of any size, urban, has a lot of lot of land available. All right, now here's what I recommend. Uh, and there's a bunch of houses on here. You can buy a house for Lewis. What's the lowest house on here? Here's a house. A brick house for fifteen hundred bucks. It's a three bedroom, two bathroom. Here's what I recommend because I do not, it, particularly when it comes to urban property, I don't recommend you. And I'm just throwing up some ideas here. Uncle Tom economic thinking. I don't recommend you going in and buying a fifteen hundred dollar house. By yourself. There's another audio I have I play frequently only. I'm not going to play it today, but it's called Balling on Baltic. It basically is based on the Monopoly game, and it talks about really essentially buying a neighborhood in a place like Detroit. What I recommend, okay, if you come across a neighborhood where all the houses are abandoned or vacant or it's two or three or four people living in a block of maybe 15 to 20 houses, something like that. What I recommend, because if you're not an experienced landlord, that 1500 and you get the wrong tenant, it is going to weigh out. What I would recommend, and this is just, 
hey, I'm just one person with one idea, one or two ideas, is get you a group of people, for, like Matthew Henson, Uncle Tom, Economic Int, number what, three or four? He marched up there with his family. A family is a community. It's a little community, but it's a community. So get yourself together with three or four people of like mind. Got to be on the same page now. Get your resource together and go in and buy a whole block. Because buying one house is not going to do it. And you might be able to buy a block for like 10000 bucks. Things like Philly, um, Detroit, Cleveland, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Flint, Michigan. It's about 30. Buffalo, New York. It's about 30, 32 cities that I know where you can do this. So, but find you a block. Now, you might do some research where you can, and a lot of times you're not going to find it online. For instance, this house, I'm looking at two houses in Detroit, matter of fact, three. Matter of fact, I'm looking at right now on my screen. Here's how you do this. All right. I'm looking at three vacant lots, one for $1,000, another one for $1,000, and 1500 houses. I'm looking at three houses for $1,500. Here's how you do this. If you pick one, pick one address that you can find online. That's the easy part. Then physically go to that location because when you physically go to that location, you're going to find opportunities that will never be online. Vacant lots that will never be online. Vacant houses that will never be online. And then you do your research on that. And then you, like, say, that's how you can come up and buy a block or practically the whole block to a ridiculous price of ten, fifteen thousand dollars, maybe twenty thousand on the high end. You know, you got twenty houses on the block. That's an average, a thousand dollars a house, not including closing costs. Okay, but you want to go into a, you want to go in because you're going to need a business plan for this. But you want to go in. When you get that, that's why you need three or four to five people as partners. Because you want to go in with a community on, because you're going to need a timeline on buying the block, renovating the block, and putting the kind of people that you want in on that block. You might even want to have, if it's, if the block is in, in, in a food zone, I mean, excuse me, in a food desert, you might want to have a convenience store on there, a membership-type thing where no, only the people that live on no, the block that you guys have acquired, there's those only people that can shop there. People, people that live on that block or people that are connected to those people, they have to buy a membership. But it, once again, this is, only, this is limited to your imagination. This is what I call Uncle Sam thing. Going into an area like, you're not going to find a $1,000 house in Brooklyn, New York. You're not going to find a vacant lot as a foreclosure in Brooklyn, New York. All right. There are opportunities in New York, but they don't come this cheap. 
So, once again, modeling Josiah Henson and the entire Underground Railroad. Legally, go to a place where you can prosper. Eric Gardner, he liked to sell cigarettes by the singles without a license. Okay. A lot of people do it in New York City. Most of them get away with it. A few of them get arrested. He got killed. Had he gone to upstate New York, because what Josiah Henson did was he he bought 200 acres at first. He was buying rural property. Had Eric Gardner gone to a rural part of New York State and maybe to a county where you can sell singles, maybe he would have had to get a license. A license probably would have been under $100. He would still be living today. So step one is very important. Go to your promised land. This even goes back to the, the scriptures on this one. The promised land, after they left Egypt, because you had a bunch of people griping and complaining. Moses, we're not getting our three hots in the cot. They, weren't in, they had an entitlement mindset. And they had to cross the Red Sea, which everybody does. But the promised land is basically a place where you can prosper. You're going to have to fix it up. You're going to have to build an infrastructure. But you can leak. That's what a promised land is, a place where you can prosper. If you got to walk to get there or march, for those who like to march, march to a place where you can prosper. The thing that Josiah Henson did, which made him successful, And other slaves who went through the Underground Railroad, now he did it before the Underground Railroad, was, and what's what's making the Chinese kicking ass and taking names today, along with people in Africa as well. And the primary reason people were enslaved in the United States or anywhere else in the world is you have to create. You've got to create a product and sell it. The whole the whole thing of slavery in the United States, the whole thing of slavery anywhere, is all about creating wealth. What Josiah Henson did, along with his community, they created wealth. That's the bottom line today. Before you go on your next march of protest rally or whatever, remember, the bottom line is create wealth. Begging is not going to do it. Ticket signs won't do it unless you got an extortion racket going because that's what some people do make a living extorting people. I can name some big names that have extorted big corporate. Matter of fact, 
Let's go to Starbucks. Starbucks, basically what those two guys did, but, and I, I, I believe that whole thing, that white dude that came in and the white woman that was holding the camera, I believe they were all in on it. That was basically a, a 2018 shakedown, extortion. Recently, there was a black woman that held up a Southwest Airlines flight for about, what, four hours? And you had all these people, tip, let's just call it what it was, you had all these corporate execs white for uh, Southwest Airlines tipping, held up a damn flight for four hours. Why? Because they didn't want to be called racist. They didn't want another, uh, what do you call it, Starbucks debacle. But if we used an Uncle Tom's methodologies, go to a place where you can prosper. If you don't like the police, there are dozens of places in the United States that you can move to that has no police. If you want to live in your own community that's in your mind, your own utopia, there's a but just look. Josiah Henson bought two. You don't need 200 acres, or maybe you do, but you can do a whole lot with one. There's scores of places where you can do it. In Detroit, in Philadelphia, and a whole lot of other urban places, if you want to stay in an urban environment, like I say, get together with two, three, four, five individuals, maybe. I wouldn't do it no more than 12. No more than 12. Get together and go in and buy a block for the best results. And if you might not have any money, but if you can organize it, you've just created a job for yourself. Let's go to the phone lines here. Josiah Henson, Uncle Tom Economics. Um, we'll be going through various ways you can prosper via Uncle Tom Economics. Today, we're just introducing the concept and we threw out real estate in Detroit as an example. Um, let's go to 773. Your mic is open. <laughs> Good morning, Uncle Tom and the rest of the audience. <laughs> yes, I'm Uncle Tom. To, what are you trying to do, Kirk? Steal my, my thunder. <laughs> well, you know, you said Well, you know, you know what? You have, uh, matter of fact, what, uh, matter of fact, since you brought it up, uh, Pleasant, I've, I've told Pleasant this off here, but um, the first time that Pleasant came on It's My House, I, I forgot how many years ago, um, he had about 70 people. My calls went up by 70 people, 70 brand new people, which that's, that's, that's a community. I call it community two or three people myself, but it, it was 70 people that were connected to him on that particular podcast. And he's been talking, and he, all he talks about is wealth creation anyway with factories. He's got one in Chicago. Uh, Azor's got another one or two of them, one in Florida and one in New Jersey, I believe. So you've been thinking this way anyway. 
but we've been trying to get more people to think like you anyway. Anyway, but you are you are about to say. Well, you know, you know, unless unless you practice on the town, you you're you're just uh, spinning your wheels because as I've stated several times, you got to have a vested interest. So what you're saying, and another and another language is that you get those twelve people, and they all have a vested interest in that block, and then you create a supply of consumption that they are, they need. There's another thing that you said today that you may not have chimed in on. Was Detroit, I stayed in Detroit in 1971 for about five months, something, five or six months. But Detroit infrastructure is already in place. Right. I would say, I would say to everybody that has left Detroit to move back to Detroit, but everybody that's moving back have a vested interest and create your own assembly plants. Whether their assembly plants be I gotta whether it's simple plants be cars, refrigerators, stoves, washing machines, whatever it may be, that's consumed by the people that's living there. And you wouldn't have a desert city. Because Detroit is an opportunity for wealth, for everybody for wealth. My brother law in Leland, California this month going back to Detroit because his wife's brother still live in Detroit and because California he says it's gotten too expensive to live. So he found that going back to Detroit gives him the opportunity to create some wealth. I've been talking to this young man ever since I've been married to his sister, thirty some years. And he's now catching on to what we're talking about. And go to where there's an opportunity for you to create wealth and have a vested interest in a capitalistic system. But there's another part that you are able to do when you do this. When you have enough people living in a community or living in a city, and that city is large as Detroit, you then make the laws that you're living under. You then employ the police that policing, uh, what little policing they have to do, the city in which you live. So you turn the whole thing upside down from what what you've been used to because everybody now that's living in Detroit has a vested interest. And at the end of the rainbow, everybody get a check put in their account every year. Or they can let it sit there and grow like weeds in a field. And they can pass that generational wealth on to their children. There's no such thing, you know, we've talked about the homeless people. There's no such thing as a person having to be homeless. My my wife had a, a Ben Harbor mission. I went to Ben Harbor mission and helped a guy get elected to office. And, uh, I was talking about building some industry in Ben Harbor, Michigan. My wife, next weekend, her and her uh, schoolmates is going to Ben Harbor for a class reunion because the opportunities are there where there has been infrastructure. And then if you want to change the laws, 
then you get enough people involved, and you don't have to live under the laws that's presently or that's presently there. You can unincorporate a city. You can incorporate wherever the the corporations has been a law. They change the laws of slavery. How come you can't change the laws of incorporating a city? So there's so much you can do for having the opportunity to have a city like Detroit, Pembroke, or any other state in any state where there has been people enslaved. If you want to keep that slave man, keep it and march and protest. And you will get the same thing you've been getting for the last 400 years. But you've got to have that archetone uh, economics. You've got to. Well, you know, Pleasant, now, let's bring up a very important distinction. Now, a very important clue that uh, Sire Henson did now, he or none of the people in the Underground Railroad, they didn't try to change anything in in a city of any size, what they did, like in his case, he went and purchased um, 200 acres of land and started the um, Dawn Settlement. So they were able to make up, you know, their rules and regulations. Now, it's like the two towns that have come to you, they're rural townships of a small population in Illinois. Um, And those I think those are the easiest places where you can get started or tap into something that's got a basic infrastructure already and prosper. Because one one very important factor, and the laws included in this, is the politics. He he didn't try to go to a place like Toronto or Quebec, Canada, which was sizable cities. Which had which had people that had been there longer, larger populations, people with a, a larger vested interest. He went to a place where he can he could afford a vested interest, and a lot of times that is in a the unincorporated area. Um, so in Pembroke, like you mentioned, is um, it's small, and you you can do that. Whereas um, uh, in Detroit. Uh, it'll be more difficult to do that because you got people who've had a vested interest in Chicago for God knows how many decades now. So that that's a very important aspect. You have to look – and let's go to Detroit. Like I say, if you're going to buy in a place like Detroit or Philadelphia or places like that, you have – that's why I suggest go in and buy a minimum of a block of properties you know, and make that a success because then the powers that be are going to look at you differently. They're going to look at, oh, well, this is a group of people that they're going to block, you know, and then they're going to look at how many people are voters in that block. And then if you start moving that way, um, you know, you'll gain more power. I want to go now, Pleasant, before we go back to you, and we got other callers too, if you're going to organize a block, to buy a block. All right. This usually is done, well, not 
One of the ways it can be done is through social capital. And I'm going to open up a mic to a person who she's been involved with a social capital group for about two, three years now, I think. And she can give you some, you know, let, let's uh, open up her mic. Uh, Viad, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, thank, thank you for coming back online. Look, you've been involved with a social capital group dealing with real estate for what, what two, well, how many, three years now? Three years, too long. No, just kidding. <laughs> All right, three years. Now, they've been together for three years, and they've gone through some stuff that can split up people, but it's social capital. They, they've been sticking it out. Give some advice to people. If you're going to form a social capital group, what are some of the things that people should take in consideration? Um, I would say, number one, get to know the people involved really well. I mean, get to know their financial situation, everything about them. Because uh, what I discovered from some of the people involved, uh, I wanted to get out of, but I'm actually getting uh, income from this property, even though we don't even have the deed yet. So that's how much complications there are. But um, uh, get to know the people and make sure you have uh, outlined exactly what your intentions are and how, you know, everything, every little detail Make sure every detail of the transaction is outlined so that there are no questions asked. And make sure you have a financial audit every month. Make sure the treasurer is giving a financial update every month on what's going on. Those are the three things I would uh, say I had to learn the hard way. Okay. Now, you guys, I've briefly been talking about, like, there are opportunities in cities like Detroit or wherever where you can actually go in and buy a whole block, all right, if you get a social capital group together. However, I'm putting a caveat on there because you did say something very important. Uh, you need to get to know the members first. So, And I would recommend do one transaction with 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 the people that you want on a small scale, maybe just stay house. Because what are some of the things, some of the challenges that you got that with your social capital group was just three people that have had to deal deal, deal with it in over the last three years. Uh, sorry, what was the question again? What are some of the challenges that your groups had to deal with over the last three years on on just one transaction? Well, we, you know, just making sure that all the relatives uh, of the original owners are not stuff um, is that we had all these relatives showing up uh, that were claiming they uh, had some interest in the property, and the person who originally was handling everything, they didn't do their work, and then we had to bring in the lawyer. So we have had to pay a lot of legal fees because we didn't do the right um, homework to make sure that the person who died, see, we had a couple who owned the property, one person died, and then they remarried, and the new spouse had all these children and relatives hanging around. And then when they both died, uh, we didn't look into all the legal attachments that these relatives had. So 
that was the complication that we had. If it looks in any way uh, more challenging or difficult with the, own, the original owners, then, uh, then you have to do more homework. What about repairs? Oh, please. We're not even done with repairs. This is a really old house uh, built in 1920s, and um, the repairs aren't even complete. Even after three years, um, the contractor who was supposed to be handling everything is not handling everything, and so we have just run into all types of uh, problems because we didn't know the contractor well enough, and we got into this uh, way way before we finished all the legal work. So the work is still being completed, but, you know, we did enough work to get five people. It's a, it's a boarding house type situation because it was a, a four-bedroom house originally, and uh, we did enough work to um, create living acceptable bedrooms for the tenants, and they now are paying rent. And so, because this house was ready to be torn down, it was a really sick house, and ready to be torn down. We got it for basically nothing, and just a, a written agreement that we would pay the relative who thought she owned it. And so, it just got more complicated because the original owners uh, had, had had other children involved. So, but um, the repairs are still being done because it's a really old house. So, I don't recommend. Uh, people buy a really old house unless you got a really good contractor who knows what he's doing. Okay. Now, what about uh, law literacy? You recommend people know something about law or at least on uh, some kind of level learn something about it? Yeah, absolutely. You got to know something about the law and the area you're in and what are the laws about boarding houses and and, and ownership and rent. Yeah, definitely need somebody who, uh, who knows the law. All right. Um, now, you said something very important, particularly with social capital. You need to get to know the people. And I guess one of the best ways to get to know people, uh, well, is through what, what you're doing, but because uh, you guys did it through fire. But how long would you, because you're dealing with personalities, how long would you recommend people know each other and some activities on how people can get to know each other before they get into former group and buy something? Uh, you no, know, I'm almost at the point where you have to ask for somebody's financial statement because, and then know everything they're involved in because the problems I've had I should have known about this person's financial situation and uh, and then just done more homework. So I, I don't know. That I think it depends on the per- type of people you're dealing with, how long before you get involved. I think, too, you feel comfortable and satisfied that you have enough information about that person. That's what I would say. Including home life. Yeah. And even their personal life. I mean, you, I think you know a little bit about it. this person. I got, you know, texts from baby mamas and that kind of type of thing. And I'm like, oh, hell, what do we? So, yeah, you have personal everything. You're, and, and then that we you don't develop a friendship in social capital. This is business. Because you, you start acting like you're friends with these people. And then uh, that you don't get all the information you need on a business level. And then uh, you have more legal problems. 
Yeah. Now you now your group your group of three your group of three has managed to attack the three is like I say the property is it it is throwing off the cash flow. What would be the why would you I mean, how has it lasted three years? Because a lot of people, some of the things that I know about, I don't know about everything, it could have could have broken up within the first year. I, why do you think you guys have stayed together successfully for three years now? I, I think it's our determination, especially the two two women involved, our determination to uh, be successful at this and to make a little money, have some income. We were determined to make this work. And so despite all the complications and problems that that came up, we were determined to work it out, figure out a solution, and and try and get this thing resolved. That's what I think what has made it work this long time. We were trusting, trusting, trusting that the people involved were going to, you know, rise to the occasion and get things done, and that we were going to, our communication skills improve. So there's a lot of benefits to it, as challenging as it's been. We were just determined that this was a good project because we got five people renting this place that would have been homeless, more than likely. I mean, they're mm. not paying much. They're not paying now, much. You've never all, had a problem finding people to live in a place. No, no. There are people lining up. It's amazing because this is not the you know the Hilton, uh, but. They're lining up because they would have been either in a hotel spending more money or homeless. So that was our intention from the beginning. That was the pure intention we all set was that we were going to help people who needed housing and provide it at a low rate. And that's exactly what has happened. And so I think when you set that type of an intention, that the universe with you despite all the complications and challenges that come up. Now, you guys formed the LLC uh, as well. So explain why you guys formed that and, you know, how long did it take to form it? Well, that didn't take any time at all. You can do that online in a matter of minutes, and then it's a matter of paying your taxes and filing income tax, all that. So it seemed that was the arrangement and uh, the simplest way um, to, uh, you know, operating legitimately, I think. Okay. Now, yeah. Now, like I say, this is just one transaction. Now, for people, because I did mention in a sanitized way that a person can go to Detroit and maybe buy ten houses or twenty houses, buy the whole block. After hearing your story, I would then I suggest people instead of trying to go for the the whole block, master. About how many transactions you think a, a little social capital group should master before they even try to even think about tackling an entire block? Oh my goodness, I, I have. It depends on the individuals involved, you know, because you know, after all, what I've I've learned, you can't move too fast when you've got people who are not being honest and who aren't being transparent, and you're constantly dealing with their personalities. It just, it depends on who. If you got family, even family members, you never know how family to um, cooperate or or work with you. So you can't move too fast. I don't think on any business transaction when you have people who are not being, 
who who it's revealed are not being totally honest or transparent about what's going on. Right. Now, now you've been getting educated through this process for three years. Um, do you guys have meetings that just are in educational in nature? We we started out having monthly meetings, sometimes every two weeks, and then they got stretched out. Now we barely having a month a monthly meeting because everybody's so busy. But I think that is important. Just it, it's nothing else for the financial reasons. Get an update on where we are in our. We have a checking account together, so there should always be, in my mind, an update on what's going on with the money. And um, that becomes so important. Uh, because if you're going to fix things in the house and how much money you're going to be paid monthly and how much more money we need for legal reasons. So there should always be, in my mind, an uh, accounting update every month. What about security? Property security, security. materials and all that type stuff. Security in the house where we're... Uh, for materials, because you guys, have, you, bought a lot of, you bought a lot of materials. Well, yeah, it's like that should be the contractor's job. That's where we had our first problem. The contractor, uh, we bought some roof tiles, and the contractor decided to leave them in the in the driveway and cover them up, and then somebody stole them the night, the couple of nights later. So that that's why I say you have you need to know your contractor, and make sure you got somebody who knows what they're doing. All right. What about the neighborhood and your neighbors? Neighborhood, the Habitat for Humanity is like taking over, gentrifying the neighborhood with these brand new houses. People are really starting to keep up their houses, paint their houses. So the neighborhood is is coming along really nicely, thank goodness. Um, Doesn't look, I mean, the whole area could have crime problems, but in, in the particular neighborhood we're in, it's improving. So that's a good thing. Okay, all right, so essentially uh, for people to put the, like you said, with social capital groups, make sure you know your people that you are potentials to organize a group, know them very well. Um, and, uh, oh, let me ask you this. Temperament, do you, well, man, this is such a broad question, but Let's say a person who has an imp- uh, an, an impatient nature about them. Do you recommend they deal with a, uh, a, a a social capital group or just do it on their own? Because you do have to have some patience. That is kind of a broad question, but I think it, it depends on what that person's intention is and what they plan, what they want to learn. If this is something new, like it was for me, and another young lady who's in this, we were determined to learn something, to grow, to create an environment for people to have cheap housing. So I think it just depends on what the individual's plan, intention is, what their goal is when they go into something like this, because it's not something you can rush through. I don't really, I wonder how many real estate transactions go smoothly with no glitches. So Going into it with that that knowledge or understanding, you they you have to know you can't be impatient in most real estate transactions because something usually goes wrong or there are delays. So I don't know why anybody would go into something like this being impatient. Whatever impatience I had had to be put on the sideline 
because I realized real quickly that it was going to be uh, a, a process that I had to be patient and determined with. Well, the reason why I threw this in there, although it's a broad question, is you have some people that go into transactions, and it can be real estate or anything. And although you spell it out to them, for some reason, if they don't get their money back in 30 days or 60 days, they, you know, they run to the DA's office or police or whatever. Um, so you, you, if you got a lottery mentality, um, what we're talking about is, you know, it, 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 it's not for a person. Um, right. You do, like you say, you do have to exercise some patience, and there are things that are going to pop up that you didn't and could not anticipate. And anticipate. That's just life, really. Um, so that's why for, for people that are, like, say, you have these potential opportunities in Detroit, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Orlando, but I, I don't. To a high degree, I wouldn't recommend a novice starting out there, you know. But even world uh, situations have challenges. But it's I think it's easier, uh, aka the Josiah Henson method. Go to a place where it's easier uh, to, to do things than learn the ropes. Learn the ropes. Well, thank you, Viata, for that feedback um, on social capital. Like I say, the opportunities exist, but, you know, for people that want to use that concept of organizing as a social capital investment group, I would recommend if you're going to go urban in a city, start off like they did with one project. See if you can get along with the other people and go through the challenges, the, the growth spurt that you guys are going to have to go through as a group. You know, see if you have the temperament for it. Now, oh, let me ask you this one, one last question. Now, you live in a tiny house, and you've heard several times to build a cabin for $2,000. Knowing what you know now, particularly what you guys have spent on this house in Orlando, which is throwing off a cash flow. Your next move after, let's say, you get out of this transaction, what would you do? Go into another transaction with a group, a group of social capital people or do something solo and do it in a rural or urban situation? What do you think you might do? Well, my next thing is that uh, I have a very close friend whose son has been living in Costa Rica for a long time, three or four years. And he became a real estate agent, and he just bought some property, and he's looking for people to buy um, lots from him. That's my my goal, because he has been there. He knows what he's doing. He's learned how the people, the, the country, the property. He knows exactly. And there's very few people involved in this. Just him and my friend, who I trust. And you've been the, uh, now, now. You've been to Costa Rica yourself, though. Yeah, so I'm I'm looking yeah, to yeah. go outside the United States now, because um, I don't have now, any now, reason to. Now the caveat on that is, Viata, you've done some globe trotting. You've been to Costa Rica, so you're not a beginner. Okay, <laughs> so let's bring it back in. 
pretend you're talking to a, a person who hasn't done anything yet, but they're thinking about getting into their first transaction right here in the United States because you know because you're getting sophisticated on this now. So, what do you recommend a, a, a person who's in the United States? What do you recommend they do just starting out? Find a person you can trust. Trust, trust, trust. It has to be a trust element there. I mean, people Hello? and too okay, many transactions. Ahead. Too many transactions that go south because the people involved are dishonest. I think that's the number one thing. Find somebody you can trust to, to go right. in with you who, who knows what to do. And uh, the educational component is very, a very continued education component is very uh, important as well, because uh, you need to know the the legal, um, you know, structure in the community that you're in, law enforcement, you know, uh, structure in the community that you're in. Uh, there's a, hot, a whole lot of little things, so I would recommend to to um, you know do something because this wasn't your first real estate transaction anyway. You had owned a home in California, uh, another one in Florida, then you own a tiny house of your own outright. So you had a little bit experience under your belt on top of you know from the get go. And uh, you've been to Costa Rica, so I, I don't recommend a person who's never. If you haven't been outside, don't you know, don't start going outside the country. You haven't noticed it. Have find something here that you can deal with. Uh, I would say solo first. I think it's easier to do things in the in the um, in a rural area, getting started, or even advanced than in a city. Although I started in the city and then worked my way out to a rural area. Um, all right, thank you, Fiona, for that that feedback. And doggone it, we were on this line so long. We had one caller, uh, three, uh, well, caller that just dropped off. You still listen, call back in, we'll put you back in. Um, thank you, Fiona, for that feedback. Three, I mean, seven seven three. Your mic is uh, back open. Any other comments, uh, Pleasant? No, no, no. I, I, you know, she covered pretty much everything that I've had to go through. And uh, she's right. you got to have somebody you can trust because I've had several people that uh, tried to undermine the mission. But I, I was able to overcome it because I was able to finance what I was doing without any social capital for some for a few years. So right. if, I fell in, if I fell in the rut, I would just uh, take my money, put it where it's supposed to be, and then uh, climb out and keep going. Well, you know, you brought up something um, that's part of I call social capital building. If not, like you said, you finance some print transactions on your, yourself. That's what I've been yeah. doing for the last two years myself. I've been I've been buying acres here and buying acres there with absolutely no partners. Okay. Yeah. So they can actually see, all right, this guy, this is what, we know he can at least do this. Okay. And uh, now the next thing you do 
is pleasant. You have, um, well, you have conference calls and you have uh, your summit in September. Both of those are social capital builders. So tell us how those operate and how, and how, they, how, how, how they've helped you build. To, well, you got people in Jamaica as well as Africa. Um, and you do those on a regular. So explain to us why and how you do those. Well, I do the conference call to keep everybody informed. And if they have anything they want to discuss or they have something that they haven't heard or want to know, the conference call is an open, uh, is an open conversation among, among everybody that has vested interest in the organization so that there's no, there's no pits. There's no ditches that the people can fall into. And uh, the conference call is open for everybody to participate uh, because of the technology that we have today. They can express their ideas, what they think we need to do next, and give their input because they do have a vested interest. And that's what I built the uh, social capital on, is everybody having a voice in an organization, something they've never had before, even with uh, elections politics and all that other stuff. The reason why our organization is Infinity Building Economics, Black Political Action Committees, because if the people are not active, then and don't have any benefits coming from uh, what we are doing with with their money, you know, it's what use is it? I can do this by myself if I was, if, if I if uh, I wasn't trying to include everybody else in it, that's the reason why I was listening to you talk about Detroit because I've, I've been to Detroit, I've lived in Detroit, and I've uh, been all over the United States practically for the, except in Alaska. So it, it, the opportunities presents itself pretty much in every state. Every state has those uh, opportunities that somebody can capture tap into. And that's really what I was talking about, the laws. You have to know the law of every state that you're going to be producing the product in. <clears throat> Let me tell you uh, something else. The reason why you want to have places like Africa, Jamaica, and all the rest of the states in the United States is that you want to have a, a of enough people into whatever product that's being produced, you got a customer base. And if you don't build a customer base, like she was talking about, people are standing in line because they don't have. But the only problem that I see that she may or may not have is that the people that she's housing is going to need a vested interest so that they can have more than just a shelter because they have no police and interest in where they're living. And everybody to our organization have a policing interest of each individual to where their monies are producing a product. Like you were talking about the food. That's a good thing <clears throat> that we've got temperature we've been working with because they're raising food already so we now can build the industry there so the food that don't sell over the counter, we can can it and sell it at a later date so that we have no waste. 
So you got to look at every component that lives in consumption so that you can harness the wealth and recycle the wealth 100%. Yeah, it took me a while to get to get educated about the uh, total economic political system, but uh, living in a capitalistic system, you will never stop learning if you want to be a successful person and have everybody within the organization being successful. Because I, I think this the United States is too large for one person to say, well, I'm going to take five or six people and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You don't have no power with five or six people. If you want to change the laws, you got to have you got to have an organization like Democrats and Republicans. If you look on our website, you see that we got a, we have created since we've been doing this. We have created another arm of politics so that we can organize more people, so that we will have a voice when we go to Washington D.C. to actually address uh, our interest in a capitalistic system. United, United Political political Organization that's on our website. So now we have three uh, uh, systems in the United States to where we can have a voice in government. And you've got to have a voice to where everybody can have a vested interest in a country in which they live. And you can't do that with two or three or four people. You know, you'll be voting like we've always voted. You'll be voting for the less than the three evils, less than the two evils, and those kind of things. So, yeah, it's a lot for them. I think they're on the right track, and I think they'll learn a lot because I've been there and done what they are starting to do. And I'm, I'm proud of them because they're starting to look at the power that you have in numbers. And so that the laws that's devastating to a community or a race of people, you can uh, change those laws. You can change the Constitution of the United States. You can, There's so much that you can change that need to be changed for humanity because the law, the civil laws, addresses some of the stuff, but you keep marching, but there are some people that you don't never see marching. And those are the what those people that drive the uh, the buckets down the down the highway, <clears throat> the Mormons, you don't see them people marching. For what? They are an independent nation of people that's living in a capitalistic system. You don't see the Chinese marching. They are an independent nation of people living in a capitalistic system in the United States. You don't see Jews marching. Irish ain't marching. So why are we marching? Collectively, we have the power to do what everybody else has done under the Constitution and law in this country. And that's what we base our organization on. And that's what you'll see at our summits. That's really why we have summits every year so that we can expand and have transparency with all the members in our organization, all of them, and those that are coming into the organization. 
see, I think Trump has cleared the way for us to actually look at the power of people. Because he's not over there talking about Russia. He's over there trying to organize Russia for for the Ku Klux Klan to have more power on the same wavelength in the United States that they have in Russia. He's not trying to be friends with Russia. He's trying to recruit Russia so that they can all be on the same page. So that's my comment for today. Okay, well, uh, there's a lot of uh, information that you give on those conference calls. I'm I'm thinking there's a lot of value there on those conference calls. I know, uh, matter of fact, just on this podcast, uh, we had two conference calls with two podcasts where we had a mayor uh, of a city in Alabama and he he was he formerly lived in Los Angeles. Matter of fact, he you can sort of say he he was doing Uncle Tom economics. He moved yeah. to Los Angeles very a lot of people very congested, a lot of density, and you can't buy twenty acres of land in Los Angeles, California. But he moved to this particular town and which is a black township in Alabama, and then there's another black township with a black mayor. Not too far from there. And we've had them on here twice. And then me yeah. and you've had a couple yeah. private calls offline with them. Um, yeah. And then now you're doing the um, – now that's before I was picking up clues. I guess we were – do you because you, you've done more traveling than I have. Uh, Uncle Tom Economics then. Um and then, like I so said, you found, well, these two towns in uh, Illinois. Um, but, yeah, the conference calls that you provide in, in the, the social capital building thing, people, that's Pleasant Stephens offers, offers uh, you can build social capital, and he gives a lot of value. Because, like I say, you just from that, that I, I guess that uh, that mayor, um, you know which one I'm talking about. Um, yeah, basically, I, I, I took a page out of that particular podcast, and then I wasn't into Taft and all that before then. I ended up going to Oklahoma before I went to Alabama. I haven't gone to Al- I haven't gone to Alabama since like the '90s. But um, but then you found this uh, opportunity up in uh, what do you call it? Uh, Illinois, and that's only an hour away from Chicago. Actually, two opportunities. Yeah. And that's what I know about. Once you get there, there are probably more opportunities sitting in front of your face. It is. So, it is. Uh, quite a few. I'm going to share some of them with you. I'm going to take you around to them so you can see them. Okay. All right. Well, Pleasant, we are out of time for today. Thank you for your feedback. We'll be back tomorrow. 